What you're saying is that all software has become SaaS. Hey, I love the SaaS service, but I want an on-premise version. So it's SaaS by the new Wall Street definition of SaaS. The first feature flag is easy. It's when you start to have 50 and you want to control them and manage them. That's when it's hard. One of the main reasons that people want other people's software is that it's more secure than writing it themselves. Well, everything can be written in 50 lines, I thought. One of the last holdouts against continuous delivery is SDKs. It's not like back in the old days when an SDK was an SDK. This is pretty inside baseball. Hi, I'm Paul Berger, founder of CircleCI. I'm Edith Harba, CEO and co-founder at LaunchDarkly. And you're listening to To Be Continuous, a podcast about continuous delivery and software development. You can get in touch with us anytime at our Twitter handle, at ContinuousCast. The show is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. So we're going to talk today about SaaS, about software as a service, and about how that relates to continuous delivery. So Jason Lemkin runs a huge conference called Saster. It was just called one of the top conferences that an entrepreneur can go to. And when I looked at who was attending, like it's basically everybody who's making software. Right. You know, so his original premise was that you need a conference just for software as a service. And this was that conference, and now it's just I look at it I'm like, well, this is just software. So what you're saying is that all software has become SaaS. Yeah, and 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 even beyond that, SaaS in itself has then turned around and gone back to on-prem. Right, right, right. Which on-prem is on-premise, where a customer takes a version and they install it on their own hardware. Which is at that point, is it still even SaaS? Right. So so I guess a good point is, uh, or a good place to start is to say, we think of SaaS as being software as a service, like it's it's. Software that you run in the cloud or something like that is—is is that really what what SaaS is? Is—is is that a modern definition? Well, so the original definition was a movement away from how software was sold when I started off, which was people bought a three-year license mm-hmm. um, and they got a version of it, and then they would pay eighteen percent or twenty percent, depending on what they negotiated for updates. Okay. And what would happen then is that people would get cheap, mm-hmm. or they would forget. And they would stop paying their support, and then they would just have this old, perpetually good, and I'll, I'll put an asterisk by perpetually good version they could run for forever. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so there's still a lot of customers out there who are running Vignette V6, which was the original product that came out over a decade ago. That kind of gels with my understanding of what people are talking about when, when they talk about SaaS. It seems to be a lot more uh, of a business model than it is necessarily about how software is delivered. So the idea of uh, recurring revenue. Based around having to pay every year um, all the time, and how the software is actually delivered, whether it's whether it's sold on prem, whether it's sold in the cloud, whether it's a per seat license or whatever, seems to be rather separate from how people think about SaaS. I think they've gotten mingled in people's minds now, right. though, because you have the whole second wave of people saying, "Hey, I love the SaaS service, but I want an on premise version." Right, right, right. I, I remember talking to Coverity when they were. Transitioning from their uh, on-prem licenses, I think I think they were selling it for something like eight cents a, a line of code or something like that, and, th- and they were transitioning to to a SaaS model. And the reason that they were transitioning to a SaaS model was they were going public soon, and the economics of a SaaS model are well understood by Wall Street and are well understood by by public companies and are much better economics and much more predictable um, and 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 just much more profitable all round than. Than the old model of, well, of selling the enterprise software and and the maintenance fees. Well, so Paul, this is hilarious for for two reasons. Um, 
One is I, I remember when SaaS was something that Wall Street didn't understand. Right, right. Like yeah. when Salesforce was the new kid, and they had their 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 actual logo was software with a with a slash to it. Right, right. Well, I mean, it, it was fifteen years ago. You, you, yeah. you assume that that bankers and investors that have can learn something over fifteen years. Well, because the very nice thing about the the other model of the on prem model is you get all the money up front. Right, right. So yeah, it's 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 definitely a there's a different accounting model. Um, and a lot of people have spent a lot of time talking about the accounting model and when you can recognize revenue and and yeah, it's a headache. I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, you'll go public one day and, and uh, you'll have to deal with that shit. I had to do it at Tripit because Tripit was a division of Concur, and there was um, part of what I did was a lot of revenue reconciliation and it, it makes your head spin. Right. Um, so the the second funny part is um so one of our advisors is Andy Chow, mm-hmm. who was the co-founder of Coverity. Right, right. I know Andy. Yeah. I think what surprised me is originally I. You know, I thought there's no reason why anybody should want on-prem, but mm-hmm. actually, we're having customers who are requesting it for various reasons. Right. So, I mean, the main reason I'm guessing is uh, security policy. Yes. They, they they get to uh, not necessarily that it's more secure, but that they get to deal with how secure it is, or they they get to. I mean, one of the main reasons that people. Want other people's software is that it's more secure OPS. than writing it themselves. A reason to buy software versus building it yourself is that you can trust that these people have, you know, a dedicated security team and spend a lot of time thinking about the edge cases and and, and that kind of thing. And one of the the nice things about SaaS originally is that you didn't have to install it on your machine and worry about updates and worry about security and worry about firewalls and that sort of thing. But as you say. Some people, especially large enterprises, are very into worrying about that sort of thing, and they have 400 uh, item checklists that you need to fill out before you sell software to them, and it's all about security. And it's not—I mean, I'm actually going to say it's not really about security, but it's about the the security process, which is, I think, for for many large companies, more important than the actual security of the situation. <laughs> You're basically calling security theater. Not not exactly. Um, when you get to a certain size, you can't actually guarantee security, and so what you do instead is you establish processes, and then there's someone to there's a scapegoat somewhere. You have plausible deniability because you spent the the time and you did the ISO process or the the hypo or whatever <laughs> or whatever it is. So so I actually have a tangent. Um, so uh, I I wrote an article on staging servers, which was deliberately provocative, mm-hmm. and um, my mom writes ISO standards. Oh really? Yeah. And I always kind of make fun of her because I'm like, oh, mom, that's yeah. that's you know like nobody actually follows those in the real world, basically, which is kind of a jerk thing to say. Right, right. Um, but what she said back to me is that the standards always lag by ten to fifteen years the reality of the world. Right, right. Of course, of course they would. Yeah. Which was a polite way for her to put that. <laughs> <laughs> so back to your point. So w- w- what I'm saying is that it's funny that people look at going on prem with a SaaS product. To deal with security, when one of the initial great parts about SaaS is that you don't have to do that. Yeah. Someone else is running the software. I didn't think that was the reason why people bought. So, I actually, have two more interesting data points. From my perspective, it wasn't security that people bought SaaS, it was that they didn't want to take on the cost of hardware. Okay. So, like, um, as in a CapEx sort of arrangement? Both the capex and a, and the people. Like I remember when you used mm, to like right. so so I I was a engineering program manager and a product manager of an installed product. Mm-hmm. And when I went to customers, they had to maintain a staff of people. Right, right. Who did the care and feeding of an entire stack? Yeah. 
Yeah. Like, like you know, they had people who would, you know, database, web server. Mm-hmm. And th- this is the thing now when, when you know, as a small company, when you buy SaaS, you're not just getting the software, but you're getting, you know, a team of five people who, who keep it operational and people who are building the new stuff and, and all that sort of thing. And you're paying, you know, like, Fifty or five hundred or five thousand dollars a month for for this, which is infinitely cheaper than than you could do otherwise. Yeah, you're basically buying the economy of scale that you don't have to spin up your own app server to right. run every piece of software that you've bought. Right. So when we talk about what what SaaS is, right, a lot of us think of of SaaS. A lot of us engineers, especially, think of SaaS as being in the cloud. Yeah. Right. SaaS SaaS is a thing that is run by the vendor. On the public cloud, it's a multi-tenant thing. It's you know thing that updates all the time. That there's maybe a lot of uh, it's quite synonymous with continuous delivery or you know something along those lines. And it has APIs and they're RESTful and uh, and all that sort of thing. So the modern SaaS tool that 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 us developers are used to. And when you look at installing that on premise, you actually get the vast majority of the benefits of it. You just don't get all of them. So I mean, you you get the modern tool, you get the the REST APIs, you get the you get the cloudy bit. I mean, it runs you know very often when people are talking about installing on prem, what they're talking about is installing it on uh, AWS yep. um, virtual private servers yep. or by VPC virtual private cloud, um, or you're running it on VMware, and you're not actually being given something which you know can install on sixteen different flavors of Unix. Like it was ten years ago when people were, were were selling software. So you're getting you're getting VMs probably, or you're getting container images, and that that's a very different world than than it used to be. Uh, and so you're getting still a lot of the advances. So if you buy if you buy Circle on prem, you know it, it's part of your cloud and it scales up and it scales down, and you're not like managing a particular set of servers in the way that you are. In fact, a lot of the server management or a lot of the the scaling is 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 built into the product itself. So you're you know, dealing with a control panel, which is probably a fairly part-time job for you know for one developer, yeah. rather than you know an entire team is managing the database and managing the stack and, and all that sort of thing. Yeah, and and exactly what you said was one of the big original draws of Salesforce. Okay, go on. Um, so one of the original draws when their when their literal logo was no software is that like, hey, you don't have to buy this entire stack of people. Gotcha. To run to if you're a sales organization, which Salesforce originally was, yeah, Salesforce. It's like you want to get visibility into your pipeline. You don't want to have to employ an entire IT staff to get that, right, right, right. Because that was the way. That, that's what you did with Siebel or something, right? Yeah, I mean that was SAP's whole business model is that mm-hmm. you bought these incredibly complex packages, right, um, to to run your business processes, and then you own them, you know, top to bottom, vertical implementations, right, right. It's funny that that you know Salesforce is the original SaaS because I don't think any of us who look at modern SaaS would look at, at Salesforce as a, as a pinnacle of it. No. So they they do quarterly releases and and they're you know they they're not continuously delivering and I, I think it's they get they get pulled very much by their enterprise customers mm-hmm. and they did this before they had an effective feature flagging management system. Right, right, right yeah. And uh, well by, put. by by the way, thanks for wearing your lunch darkly shirt today. <laughs> Um, um, but so so Salesforce got pulled so far with all these one-offs for different customers that mm-hmm. I heard at one point it took them two years to make any release. Wow! 
So the fact that they got it to quarterly cycles is is probably a, a very positive thing for them. Yeah, what happened is they got to this point where it was a two year cycle, and they're like, we can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. And then the two year cycle just to like change anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's when they hired a lot of agile consultants. They're like, we need, you know, to just quarterly. We need to be faster. Right, 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 right. So which is a sea change. Quarterly is is not fast enough for for those of us on, on kind of the small side of things, or also the big side of things. Yeah, you know, Facebook would would have a revolution if they said quarterly is is how often we'll release. Well, I, I think so. Salesforce is interesting. I, I actually um, they are very much the incumbent, mm-hmm. so they're not really selling on innovation. I mean, mm-hmm. not right, to, right, right, right. It's funny because. The the amount of Salesforce replacements that are that are out there, I, I read somewhere that there was sixteen hundred uh, sales and marketing automation companies that were funded last year. Yep, uh, and like those are those are sixteen hundred uh, Salesforce competitors. Well, I think it's kind of Salesforce is the way IBM used to be. Right, right, right. It, it's a it's an ecosystem and consultants and partners and and you you'll never get fired for buying Salesforce. Yeah, exactly. Right. If you're if you're going to run your sales pipeline, it's like, do I want to Go with this new risky tool or not? Right, right. So right, I, right. I said something to the team the the other day, which they didn't say was much of a pep talk. <laughs> but I said the only reason people bought Lunch Darkly is because they were truly desperate. Okay. That there is really no alternative to us in the market. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if IBM was making this, if Salesforce was making it, they if if this was something that was not right. Th- this is enterprises that, that that are buying. Yeah, we have I a lot of enterprise right. and, customers. And they're right buying now. from a small startup because they're they're desperate. That's the yeah. That's the crux of it, right? But desperate in a good way. They're like, we really need this. Right, right, right. right. We would, so they're trusting us. Right. That, that was the end of the pep talk. So it sounds like IBM should buy you. <laughs> I hear that Launch Darkly is very popular these days. I see. So we originally had this thesis that we would be a lot of small mm-hmm. companies. Instead, we have big enterprises. Right, right, right. We're like, we we need this. I mean, it's it's one of those things where where small companies. They, they they think they can build it themselves, and in fact, they you know they, there are libraries out there to do feature flags and and that kind of thing. So you can do you know a fairly effective feature flagging mechanism with one or two developers, kind of you know just taking a library and off off the side or something like that. And it's it's really when you start you know when you've done that for a couple of years that you start to see the error of your ways. <laughs> I mean, really, what we're selling is feature flag management. Right, right, right. Yeah. Like it's like uh, so. Somebody did a, a you know a, a diss on Twitter, which was you know I can implement a feature flag in fifty lines of code, and I'm like, yeah, of course you can. Right, right, right. Like the first feature flag is easy. Is when you start to have fifty and you want to control them and manage them and see who touched them last and have yeah. like that's yeah, yeah. that's what is hard. So going back to going back to SaaS and 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 that sort of thing, you were you were talking about Saster originally, and you were talking about Salesforce as you know kind of a. A model that that ended up having lots of salespeople and that sort of thing. One of the original things that that I felt about SaaS and that that people were talking about SaaS was that it kind of sold itself. Yeah, there and was... you didn't need salespeople that much, and you were you know you you could you could buy SaaS with a credit card, and, and people talked all about Basecamp and the the thirty seven signal stuff were kind of early successes in the SaaS world, and they were like you know there's no salespeople here, you just you just buy with a credit card. Yeah. Um... So I think you're right. There was a belief that a while that that SaaS was synonymous with self-serve. Yeah, yeah. That if you didn't need to go get your IT department to go install this, if you if it's the old SAP model, if you didn't yep. need somebody to install that, if you didn't need people to configure it, if you could just onboard yourself, mm-hmm. why do you need a salesperson? Right, exactly. And and there was a low price point associated with that. People were were typically selling 
very low price things, uh, certainly not things that, that, that cost thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars. So I think there's two things that are happening there that are making salespeople be part of the ecosystem. It's more and more complicated things that are being served over SaaS. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like I, I again, I remember when everybody's like, "Oh, you can never, for example, have portal server or something that's actually technical be a mm-hmm. service." Now AWS is a service. Right. 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 Yeah. Like, like so. So now that there's more and more technical things, and I say not technical just in terms of dev tools, but more technical in terms of marketing automation, sales automation. Mm-hmm. When you have a bigger purchase, there is a need for a salesperson. Right, right. Maybe more than a salesperson. I mean, salesperson definitely, definitely useful. But when you have the product, you know, you need an account manager and you need someone who who you can who you can email and say, you know, something is wrong. Help us right now. Uh, and related to that, you know, when you're getting installed, you need a sales engineer and you need someone to manage the process. And make sure. I mean, no one ever needs a salesperson. You can always carry yourself through the process. If, if 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 you wanted to buy software, right, and you you were desperate to buy software, you could get yourself through it. So it's interesting. So what I've, I mean, I'm sorry, Paul. I'm talking a lot about my own company today. What, what we saw with Launch Darkly is that we actually had a. We originally thought we were going to sell directly to developers, right? What we saw is that we had a different buyer persona than a user persona, right, 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 right. And I think that's where you insert salespeople into any SaaS process. What I'm saying is that you're inserting it because. It is a more efficient way for the company to ensure that sales happen, not because it's necessarily required. So here's my own experience. Mm-hmm. Um, we originally thought we were going to be very much like Atlassian, okay, yeah, which yeah. is deep in our DNA. Uh, my yeah. co-founder John is from Atlassian. Our first yeah. two engineers were Atlassians. For a while, it was me and three Atlassian people. Yeah. Eventually, I came to the realization that even though I would tell people like, "Hey, you could just go start using our product." I was actually talking more to directors of engineering or CTO mm-hmm. who just wanted more information from me right, 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 right. before they decided to invest for their entire organization. Yeah, yeah. Like um, PVH, PVH put it the best. He's like, they want to hear that there's a real person behind this. Right, right. right. So lo- lo- looking back at at, at Circle, um, the vast vast majority of our customers bought. Uh, without any any without talking to any other human at all, maybe they they emailed support, but it wasn't a sales process. It was a um, it was it was completely self serve, and this was true for the first three three and a half years. Occasionally, people would buy some. Uh, occasionally, people would you know request their CFO to have a conversation with with someone on our side or the CFO. Yeah, just, just to you know allow them to gain confidence that that there's a real. Human there, and you know, to sign off on the, on the purchase, and the, the, I think that was one of our first thousand dollar customers, or thousand dollar a month customers. That they were like, you know, our CFO wants to know that you're a real company, and at the time we were five people, you know, scarcely a real company at all. So we were able to, we, we were selling ten thousand dollar a month contracts without without a salesperson. But uh, you, but you had a salesperson. We had a salesperson, absolutely. Which we, we had a part time salesperson. No, who, you were you were the salesperson. I was the salesperson, yes. And that's what I mean. But it was part time, and I wasn't exactly running the process. You know, I I didn't have a big like checklist of of you know where everyone was in the pipeline and and following them through. I was largely answering emails as they came in, and the customer was was driving the process because they they desperately needed it. That's a very different sales process than people buying the on prem. So people who buy Circle on prem 
are talking to a salesperson. They want to talk to a salesperson. They want someone who will manage the process for them and make sure that it doesn't drop off the radar because they've got, you know, a quarterly goal that's associated with getting CI in place, um, and they have forty different steps that they need to go through to be able to buy software, and they need someone on the other end who's actually going to do that. Exactly. And it's, it's not going to be a support team. It, it's going to be a person who whose job it is to make sure that 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 happens. Yeah, I mean a good person, a good salesperson helps everybody look good. Right. So we've gone from a place where where people bought almost entirely self-serve to a place where people and I mean as an industry as a, as the SaaS industry to a place where where people use enterprises. And you're right, it, it's a lot to do with the complexity. It's a lot to do with like people selling larger price points and larger companies looking to buy SaaS. So at, at the start May, at the start, you could buy your your Salesforce, SaaS, whatever, and you know th- those guys had tons of salespeople to, to to deal with that. But the vast majority of you know SaaS were were looked a lot more like Fog Creek and Thirty Seven Signals, and there were no salespeople on the other end. Now, people are selling much much higher price points, um, and you know I, I, I'm looking at a company like um, uh, Do you know Hearsay Social? Yeah, it sounds familiar. They're based in Mission Bay. They're a uh, they sell uh, some sort of predictive model based on your social profiles to like insurance companies and that sort of thing. So there's something Sounds like very brave new world. There, there's something like 200 potential customers for them in the entire world, and they're massive, massive contracts. And so they they have a massive sales team, right? The, the or maybe not a massive sales team, but it's entirely sales driven, right? Because you can't sell to one of those 200 giant companies. Without having a a sales team that is managing every step of the way, and that is an entirely SaaS product. There's no on-prem; it's it's all in the cloud and it's all managed on the on the Hearsay's servers. But because of the business model, they need to they need a sales team and the price point. Paul, this is pretty disappointing, but I agree with you. Uh, Again, I, I think what's really happened is that SaaS was originally scary and new, so it was very much low market. Right, and it's just moved up the food chain. Is at higher and higher food points, uh, higher and higher price points. Right, like what you said. Like some hearsay, they're not just going to tell one insurance agent, "Hey, install this," and start giving quotes. Right, right. It's something that has to come organization wide. And at that point, you need a salesperson. I, I remember the way that many of us in this industry learned about SaaS was reading the the Joel on software discussions about how they sold Fog Creek and why they switched to a web based thing. I'm not sure he he used the word SaaS, maybe it was cloud, maybe there was a maybe pre SaaS. It wasn't it wasn't pre Salesforce, but I think it was pre the rest of the industry knowing about SaaS. And you know part of the benefits there was the vendor controls updates. Yes. Uh, the vendor decides exactly when the software gets updated, and they deal with security things, and they they you know, they get the exceptions, so they you know, you don't need to get you don't need to do bug reports, or you don't need to do as many bug reports. You, you get a lot of that information yourself instead of having to collect logs or, or that sort of thing, and it feels very different from how we look at SaaS today, in the sense that you know, SaaS is, is kind of a business model, but at the same time, it feels. It feels a lot the same in 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 the sense that there there's a very strong tie between what Joel was talking about and continuous delivery. Yeah, it's and a, that to to me modern SaaS is you know has very very strong parallels or maybe 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 very strong correlation with continuous delivery. And I think if you can't do continuous delivery on it, you're almost it would be very difficult to to refer to it as a SaaS. Yeah. So 
I'd say continuous delivery has really cheapened SaaS, and I mean that very good. It's brought down it's brought down the cost, right? Because I remember the old days where you would have all these versions at different customers, mm-hmm. yeah, and then you would try to coax them to upgrade, right? Right, and and you, you would have to backport changes to the old release branch and and be able to, so the- and, and and a lot of times it, they couldn't upgrade because it meant having to upgrade all the underlying stack also, right. So then you got into this very complicated dance. If you're like, well, you're on Sybase version, blah. Yep, yep. The new version no longer supports Windows, whatever. Yeah. Or Unix, whatever. And, and Postgres, so there's this, this huge cost in old software, which was just making sure that you could work on all these old versions, you and migration right. scripts. So I, I would think that almost one of the of the definitions of of what is and what isn't SaaS is whether or not there's a migration plan. So can you? Continuously upgrade that that software, and when I look at Circle's on-prem thing, it's you know we're we're not supporting fifty-seven releases. We're largely supporting the the latest release. And if you want, and there's a button that you click to upgrade to the latest release. That's and funny. Oh, go ahead. That's it. I, I was thinking um one of the last holdouts against continuous delivery is SDKs. Okay. Um. I think we talked about this before, but like we have some customers right now, and we're like, please, please, please move off that SDK. Right, right. right. I'm impressed with uh, the, there's a bunch of people out there who do very interesting stuff around SDKs, and I think Stripe is is kind of the the major one. So Stripe versions their APIs. Yep. And Stripe obviously is never going to do on-prem because it's it's payments and and cloud and uh, and that sort of thing. But they every time that they do a breaking change, they just make a new version of their of their SDK um, or of of their API. And you can use whatever version of the API you like by by sending a header, or by default you're using whatever version of the API you are stuck on. And they do a transformation from the old APIs to the new API, so they almost never need to deprecate old APIs. Interesting, but but those those are APIs on an not an SDK. I mean, if you're I, I don't know how exactly they do their SDKs, but I presume that their SDKs make calls to the the APIs. And so, if you're on the old version, maybe you know that API doesn't exist, and so you get an error. But you'll get a version error as opposed to a, you know, something subtly failing or, or something like that. Yeah, this is pretty inside baseball. Well, it's so I, I think the the major thing is is that SDKs are largely small wrappers around APIs these days. It's not like back in the old days when an SDK was an SDK and, and <laughs> ten. <laughs> Men were men. Yeah. No. <laughs> what exactly was that day? Was it uh, like a fixed day and time that you remember? I mean, I, I'm thinking of you know when you downloaded the the SDK to I don't know work on you know your your the hardware product or something like that or you know the some SDK came with Windows or I mean actually if if you're looking at like SDKs that 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 come with Apple or phones or you know whatever you're you're still kind of trapped in 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 that sort of model versus SDKs that come with SaaS are kind of small wrappers around the API very very often like literally tiny wrappers and many of them you could almost define with a schema and you know you could write the whole thing in in you know 200 lines well everything could be written in 50 lines i thought so when you when you're looking at then at what isn't SaaS, if you haven't got a migration policy, uh, or if there isn't a way to migrate, I'm I'm going to say that you couldn't really refer to it as SaaS. Uh, uh, I, I I find it hard to think of an example 
Um, I think I know what you're getting at because that's not really a service. If you're taking it as software as a service mm-hmm. and you're just saying you're on this version for forever, I think I agree with you, but I'm hard pressed to think of somebody that actually does that. That that has a migrate that has a migration plan. No, that has no migration plan. I guess right, 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 right. Uh, the the closest I could come to is all that freeware or shareware that used to float around. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, this is exactly it. If you're selling, you know, like you were talking about, whatever software relied on, you know, version six of Sybase or, or or whatever that was, you've got no migration plan because you've got no maintenance contract. There, there's a bunch of like libraries and a bunch of kind of OSS software that that, that that ships without migration plans or with it without you know scripts to to upgrade from one version to the other. And I remember you talking about the uh, the company that 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 did the upgrade from version six to version seven and had no migration plan at all. What what what, what was this again? It was Vignette. So the reason why there's still a lot of V6 out in the world mm-hmm. is because um, there was not really a migration path. From V6 to V7, they should have just started as a new product line. Gotcha. Because they switched from Tickle. Mm-hmm. So V6 was Tickle. Right, they rewrote it in Java. They rewrote it in Java. Uh, everyone did. I'm sorry? Everyone rewrote it in Java. Whatever it was, it was rewritten in Java. It was so dissecting it, like it was a smart thing to do in that Java was the wave of the future, and that seems dated now, but at the time it was, this was 2001. But they should have just said, "Here's our Java version," mm-hmm. and just called it V1 of Java instead of saying, "This is a the next iteration." Because what it basically did is it stalled everybody at V6, and then what happened was competitors came and said, "Well, the amount of effort to go from V6 to the V7 mm-hmm. is equivalent to you just moving to our platform." Right, 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 right. You know, so so they got picked off by all the other competitors who were like, "If you're already going to all this effort," right, right. And because they stopped doing updates on V6 for a while, right, right, because they want everybody to move to V7. So SaaS then overall has salespeople, un- yeah. un- unlike kind of when it started, mm. very closely tied to continuous delivery. So I'm arguing both sides of this now. Um, I don't think all SaaS has salespeople. Like for example, um, if you're going to the Saster conference, you're going to learn about salespeople. Oh, I, you're, you're, I know, a lot I know. more than you're going to learn about SaaS. Yeah, I mean, like so. For example, I'm thinking of the software we use. Like we use Quip. Mm-hmm. We use pipe drive. We didn't. These didn't have a salespeople, but right. we're at a pretty low price point, so yeah. we, we can't economically support a salesperson. At it. You know, if we're paying, yeah. I think we pay like I don't know, thirty nine dollars a month or something. Right. right. At some point, you'll like Dropbox, which which we pay a relatively low price point for. We will we will hit salespeople size at some point. There are salespeople who sell Dropbox to larger companies for much much larger price points. So I had one more interesting point about on-prem. So the, the original thing about SaaS was that you didn't have to have the cost of buying hardware. So I have a friend right now who is selling very effectively on-prem, and he's bundling into his on-prem solution the cost of the hardware. Okay. And I said, this seems odd to me, and I asked him why, and he said, well, otherwise, the people who are buying on-prem would have to go and provision the hardware and order it, and that would yep. create long delays, Right. and he wanted to get these contracts signed. I mean, this is a thing. People people are sell, you know, servers that you rack rather than software that you install onto the servers. But he so he's he's going back. He's actually yeah. selling the whole stack. So he's selling people. Originally, he started selling people software, and then right, he's like, right. it's taking them too too long to get hardware, and I want to close this deal. Right, right, right. And they're willing to pay for the hardware, so he sells it as a bundle. What does that do to the margins? That was kind of my question. He's like, right now, it doesn't matter to him. Okay, it's it's early stage. It's it's. Well, he's you selling. I mean, he's later. he he's selling the hardware for profit. Yeah. 
And mainly he just wants to get these customers on boarded instead of it waiting till a year for the next budget cycle for them right, to get right. their own hardware. So how is that related to So that's that's so basically it's a SaaS company that's twisted back on and now it's why is that a SaaS company? Well he thinks of himself as a SaaS company, but now they're doing on prem and selling right. hardware and I'm like, well this Right, right. And they they do recurring revenue, I, I presume. Yeah. Right, right. So it's 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 SaaS by the by the new Wall Street definition of, of SaaS. But it's when you look at it, you're like, hey, this is a lot like the old days. Does it have a migration plan? I should ask him that. Thanks for listening to this episode of To Be Continuous, brought to you by Heavybit and hosted by me, Paul Bigger of Circle CI, and Edith Harbaugh of LaunchDarkly. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. While you're there, check out their library home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. Mm-hmm.